Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a project of the unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. A liberal society is a tolerant one. It's a society that allows for pluralism in preferences, lifestyles, religions, and approaches to life. But how far does tolerance go? What are the exceptions? And how can we better cultivate it? To discuss these questions, I'm joined today by Andrew Jason Cohen. He's professor of philosophy and founding director of the Interdisciplinary Studies Program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Georgia State University. He's the author, most recently, of Toleration and Freedom from Harm, Liberalism Reconceived, and is working on a new book on civil discourse. What is the role of tolerance in a liberal society? That's a big question. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, what we want in a liberal society is a maximally tolerant society, one where people are free to do as they please without interference by pretty much anyone, uh, government certainly, but also uh, private institutions and other individuals. Uh, and so we want to have a clear limit to when interference is permissible, because th there are going to be cases where you're going to want to interfere, right? Nobody thinks that we should tolerate everything. We shouldn't tolerate murderers, obviously. Uh, and so we want to figure out what that limit is. And a, a good part of my work uh, on toleration has been defending a particular view of the harm principle that lays it out and says, this is the only reason, the only justification for interference, especially from the government, but really from any institution or individual. Before we get too much further, I want to ask, is there a difference between tolerance, which is what I said in my opening question, and toleration, which is what you just said? Um, yeah, I, I use them somewhat differently. I think in common parlance, they're sometimes used interchangeably and sometimes not. Uh, so I, I think just for clarity, I prefer to use toleration for the behavior and tolerance for the attitude. Uh, but we use them interchangeably in, in various cases. We certainly use tolerance for as, as a use as a name for the behavior as well sometimes. But we never talk about toleration for the attitude. Uh, we talk about a tolerant attitude. We don't talk about a tolerating attitude, even though that would be reasonable as well. And so then, if we tolerate everything but that which is harmful, is kind of the the liberal ideal. That seat just taken that way seems like a statement that almost everybody would agree with, except for maybe some people on the very, very far, like very far fringes. But where the rubber would seem to meet the road is what counts as a harm, because we could say a harm is just like punching. It's just physical force and maybe fraud, theft, if we're taking like the hardcore kind of libertarian position. But but I think most people would see harms in all sorts of other ways. Yeah. So I have a particular view about what harm is uh, and a particular view, and that results in a particular view of when interference is going to be permissible. Um, I don't think it's just physical harm. And I, I don't think any, anybody actually does think it's merely physical harm in the sense of being punched, right? I mean, if I steal from you, for example, is that a physical harm? I'm not sure it's really, we'd call it physical harm, but it's obviously a harm. Uh, I also think there are such things as psychological or emotional harms. I just think they're harder to prove. And so I think when you get into that territory, it's more difficult. 
But I would actually doubt the claim that everybody except those on the far side of the spectrum think it's only harm that allows for interference. We have a system that uh, allows for and encourages interference for all sorts of reasons that don't seem to have to do with harm, right? We have a system of blue laws, for example. Uh, I think you're kind of hard-pressed to say that uh, allowing somebody to buy alcohol Sunday morning uh, is a harm or is preventing a harm. I mean, I suppose you might try, but it seems like it's a far-fetched thing. Similarly, when we provide welfare to others, uh, certainly when you provide corporate welfare, uh, right, it's hard to justify that in terms of harm, but we, we do those things all the time in society. Uh, and similarly, I think providing sort of morals education, which don't get me wrong, I think is very useful. Uh, I don't think, again, I think it'd be hard pressed to show that this is a matter of harm. In all these cases, you might be able to do it, but at a certain point you look at the person and say, okay, you're not really talking about harm. In other cases, psychological harm is like, yeah, okay, that is a harm, and maybe that's not a harm. And in other cases, still, even physical things, like, uh, you know, the boxer gets in the ring and he gets punched. Is that the sort of harm that we want to allow interference with? I would say no. Uh, But so I think there are lots of difficult questions. And you're right that uh, where the rubber hits the road, as it were, is trying to figure out what harm is. But I wouldn't want to overstate that part, because I do think there are lots of things that other people... Uh, want to allow for interference with. Uh, so I was thinking as you were saying that about the way that someone might defend this being harm in in these these various ways that aren't immediate punching. Uh, and And so you could say like welfare, that we are allowing interference because the harm is that people are starving on the streets, whatever. Um, and so we're going to have this interference in order to prevent harm to those people of of this kind you sometimes get from more right-wing directions a an almost we call like a cultural harm that people have a right to a certain way of life and other people behaving in certain ways is not immediate course of violence but it is it interferes with living your life in a certain way which is then a harm to you but all of these seem to be the difference between these and say the punching or at least one difference is immediacy does harm have to be an immediate thing or can it be kind of multiple steps down the road if we don't interfere now then this thing will happen which isn't a harm and this thing will happen and this thing but eventually we get to harmful stuff yeah i don't think it's about immediacy at the end of the day um so for example i think uh certain forms of pollution can be harmful right even though i, I don't I'm not going to be good with the chemical stuff here, but like if two parts of X in the atmosphere does no damage to anybody, but then everybody starts putting two particles of that into the atmosphere, eventually it gets to the point where there's so much in the atmosphere that it does do harm. Right. So uh, I don't see any reason to deny that there's harm when there's significant pollution in the atmosphere or in a river or whatever it might be. Uh, and, And so we might want to stop it before you get to the, the point where it's actually harmful, right? That seems reasonable to me. Uh, So it's not a matter of immediacy, but there is a question. uh, And so again, I have a particular view about what harm is and it's a moralized notion. Uh, So harm is a wrongful setting back of one's interests and wrongfulness is really hard to cash out. I'm not going to deny any of that, but 
it doesn't seem to me that the first person who puts the, the first two molecules of whatever the pollution is into the atmosphere is doing anything wrong whatsoever. And I think you'd be hard pressed to defend that claim that they were doing harm. So it doesn't seem to me that there's a problem there. Similarly, um, you know, to use a weird example from action theory, uh, if, if you shoot me today, uh, but I end up in the hospital and I die like two weeks later or three weeks later, right? There's a difficult question about when you murdered me, but I don't think we doubt that you murdered me, <laughs> right? So the immediacy issue isn't really what's at issue. It's, it's really that the, you've done something wrongful to me. And that I really want to push at. I mean, you, I don't think it's reasonable to say that somebody harmed somebody else if they didn't do anything to them. Right. And so the person who's starving through no fault of anybody else, but only because for whatever reason they don't have access to food, or maybe they gambled away their money, or they, they used all their money for drugs or what have you, so they don't have no money to buy food. Nobody did anything to them to put them in that harmed situation. So to say that they were harmed strikes me as a mistake. To say they're hurting strikes me as obvious, but it's not a harm to them. Nobody did anything to them, so there's no harm involved. Would this then, if if preventing harm is the role of, or interfering to prevent harm is the role of the state in a liberal society, would this then preclude, I guess, interference in, say, that the drowning child, hypothetical that shows up all the time in moral philosophy of like, you see, you're walking by, you see the child drowning, you could just reach in, but it might ruin your shoes, and so you don't want to ruin your shoes. Um, and I guess that the underlying question, and this is, I think, central to the way a lot of people approach politics, is saying that there's that interference in the form of the state is not permissible in Situation Acts. Is that distinct from saying that Situation Acts has no wrongful moral features? Um, so that so could we say like it is it is a hundred percent wrong to not save the drowning child, but the state is prohibited from coercing you into doing it. I think that's exactly what we should say. It would be wrong for you not to save the child, but I assume you didn't throw the child in the water, right? And I'm assuming for the moment that you're not the parent of this child. Uh, and so I'm also assuming you have no other obligation in particular to this child or to this child's parents. Uh, in that case, you haven't done anything to the child, so you haven't harmed them. So to say that you you harm them would be a mistake. And so to say that there's interference that's permissible with you would strike me as a mistake. At the same time, of course you could, should save them, right? I mean, a, a child drowning is just a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, to, to say that the, the child drowning is a bad thing, that it's being hurt by its drowning or something like that, leads to the claim that you should be interfered with to force you to save the child. That strikes me as a big step. And that's the, that's the step I want to avoid. It does seem that one of the main points of contention in, say, contemporary American politics is about this notion that harm can be can be something that you didn't do directly, um, that that the interference can happen, and and so the this seems to be like the basis of the culture wars, I suppose, is. Trans kids, parents making decisions for their kids is both creating an environment I don't want my kids to be in or exposing my kids. I, I know someone who uh, expressed a, 
hardcore libertarian who nonetheless expressed a fair amount of sympathy for Viktor Orban because he was upset that his kids were attending a school where they had pride flags, like during Pride Month, they had posters up and saying like, look, this is, I don't want my kids subjected to this. And this person as a hardcore Catholic saw this as at like a spiritual level, actually harmful to be exposed to and to think like it was a moral wrong to think these lifestyles were right and so on and so forth. And how do you, how do you make the case grounded in this, this harm principle of a liberal society to people like that who feel basically, yes, this isn't hitting me. Yes. They're not forcing my kid to be gay, but this is creating an environment that is ultimately intolerable to me. Yeah. So there are a lot of things to be said about this. I'll, I'll tell you about a recent conversation I had with another scholar who was talking about spiritual harm and spiritual reparations. Um, and I was sort of really taken aback because I was like, okay, l- let me accept for the moment that there's this thing, spiritual harm, even though you haven't really told me what it is. How in the world do you make spiritual reparations? Like, there's this other realm of stuff, right? My soul is wandering around in this realm and your soul is wandering around in this realm and it's somehow been wronged in a bad way and it's hurting. I don't really know what any of that means, but (laughs) say that all makes sense somehow. How in the world am I in this world going to do anything to rectify that? Right? Like if it's me in the spiritual world, like my soul, then, then maybe, right? But, what are we doing about it? How are we going to talk about this? I, I don't really know how to make sense out of that. Um, and, and when this person went on to talk about it, it really just seemed like he was assuming that there's a complete parallel in the soul world, the spiritual world to the physical world. Uh, and so, you know, give them money and their spirits are better. Like, I don't know why you would think that, <laughs> but more importantly for this sort of question, I want to say, look, you are free to go start a community. If you can find enough people that want to have a community like that, where nobody has any pride flags and nobody talks about trans kids or trans issues for adults, uh, fine, go start a community that does that. Right. And so this is the idea from Chandran Kukathas' liberal archipelago. And I just find this completely uh, satisfying. Like if you want to start a community like that, you're welcome to do it. Nobody's going to, nobody in the ideal libertarian world would stop you from doing that. A bunch of us, I assume, would not join you, <laughs> right? I have no desire to live in that world. Uh, my son goes to school with a lot of trans kids and, and other people from LGBTQ groups. And I'm like, fine. Like, he doesn't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. And I think there are lots of benefits to the school. Uh, you know, there is this live and let live and let live attitude. Like, I do want to tolerate these people living in whatever way they see fit, Uh but I can imagine, yeah, some people are going to be like, this is a terrible world. I don't want my kids to expose to this. Absolutely fine. You're free to move. So long as the people that move with you, including your children, have the right to exit, I'm fine with it. Well, let me let me flip it then a bit to if we're on this topic of, of spiritual harm, because this is so in law school, I wrote a paper on there's a whole string of court cases where basically it's about religious exceptions to to laws where someone wants to do something or doesn't want to do something and they're prosecuted because of religious reasons and they're prosecuted for it. And 
the what I wrote about in the paper is how a an unstated theme of these cases or an unstated like premise of the decisions is these people's religious beliefs are false. And the reason is that if you have, say, one of the cases was about children who were handing out religious paperwork um, by the side of the road and the state prosecuted, if the parents believe that by not doing this, their children will go to hell for eternity, which is about, I mean, if that's true, that's about as extreme of a harm as we can possibly imagine, then it would be monstrously unjust to say, no, the interests of your child, say, attending school this afternoon, outweigh burning in hell for eternity. And so the only way to make sense of this, to to say, no, there's no harm being done that outweighs the law, is to say you are mistaken in your religious belief about God's judgment and the punishment that would follow from it. Um, and and so are we, if we say that these kind of spiritual harms aren't the kind of harms that were, that need to count or that can be rectified or that we should take seriously as far as state coercion, does that mean that we're basically have to be telling these people their religious, like metaphysical beliefs and moral beliefs are at some level mistaken? So I don't know the cases you're talking about. Uh, but if the state is making the case that they won't allow the exemption, uh, then it sounds like the state is saying, yeah, your religious view is wrong. Uh, so I don't think in the ideal libertarian society, that's what would happen, right? In the ideal libertarian society, I don't even think there'd be an exemption because I just don't think there'd be a law requiring the, the attendance at school. Uh, and so I think... Schooling is a good thing. I think actually prevention of harm to children probably requires that children have an education of some sort, but it doesn't require a particular sort of schooling. And so the state wouldn't have this question come up in the first place. But yeah, if, in, in the society we live in, if the state says we can't have the exemption for these reasons, that does seem like it's imposing its view about, I'm not going to say its view about the correctness of any particular religion or spiritual view, but at least the falseness of the one that the people here have. And that strikes me as a mistake. Like we shouldn't do that. So how do we sell this? I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because you've got, you've got a, a profoundly pluralistic society with people with all sorts of interests that do not align or are in direct opposition to each other. Preferences that vary wildly lifestyle choices that do come into conflict and all of them want that principles of justice matter. But for many people, it's, I want to live the kind of life I want to live and I want to be happy in the way that I define happiness. And so it seems tough as, as committed liberals to say like, no, you need to set all of that aside for one, the reason of principles of justice trump your your tastes and preferences and two your tastes and preferences aren't necessarily more important than the guy next to you um, and so he needs to have them too but that just seems like an uphill battle yeah so um a couple of things one i say something about this in my post today on pro-social libertarianism uh pro-social libertarians uh and basically i do say look 
you have your views about the best way for you to live. Um, it's perfectly normal for you to treat your neighbors, your friends, your family, your your compatriots, et cetera, your co-nationals as more important than others. That's all perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable. But that doesn't mean that they are more important than others, right? And that's where we make the distinction. And I think we have to push that a lot. We have to make sure people realize uh, a genuine, I mean, I hate to try to like talk about a purity test of some sort for libertarianism, because uh, I think that leads to all sorts of problems. But I think the, 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 a, a real libertarian is going to be concerned with all individuals, right? At root, it's not just about me. It's not just about my family. It's not just about my co-nationals or my, or my co-patriots or what have you. It's about everybody. It's about each of us as individuals. So that's the first thing. Second thing, um, I don't really think this is why I'm working on the book that I'm working on now, but it does lead into it, right? So I'm, I'm working on a book now on civil discourse uh, because I look out at society and I think, I'm not really sure it's, it, it seems to me worse by degree than it's ever been before, the level of discourse we have. But I'm not sure that's true because I think people have for centuries complained about the level of discourse in different ways. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there really is a problem out there and that we do it badly. And so I'm, I'm writing this book, which is basically meant to be uh, an instruction manual for civil discourse. Uh, and I'm trying not to put my own libertarian view into it. The only thing that I want to come out that is that I want to say this is correct is... One, you should engage in more discourse, not less. And two, uh, use this method. It might work. And so what is this method? It's recognizing basically that there are five reasons why people want to have interference, right? There's harm. There's harm to self. There's offense. There's immorality and uh, paternalistic reasons, right? Oh, sorry. And benefit to others reasons, right? Those are the reasons. You want to have people doing good, acting morally, not doing harm to others, not doing harm to themselves, and not offending others. Now, what I want to encourage people to do is actually engage with the dialogue with the people that they're disagreeing with about any particular case and say, okay, let me try to figure out why you think this is a reason for interference. So why do you think it's okay to have a blue law, for example, where, where you can't buy alcohol on Sunday morning? Do you really think that's about harm? Okay, tell me about what the harm might be. Who's being harmed and, and how do we interfere to prevent the harm? If you don't think it's about harm, do you think it's just about immorality because your religion says you shouldn't have alcohol? I don't even know if the religion actually says that, but let's assume the religion says you shouldn't have alcohol on Sunday morning. Like, does that make it immoral? Can you tell me more about that? Can tell me. And I think if we have dialogue in that way, we can convince people, maybe this is my own optimism coming through, but I think that's the way to go. Try to figure out what's at root at why people think we should interfere with others Figure out if it's a harm, if it's an immorality, if it's a matter of benefiting others, whatever it might be, and try to really get down into it and see what it is that they think is going on such that interference is warranted. I'm not saying that that's going to result in everybody coming to agreement, but I think it would improve things dramatically and we'd be able to come to much more sensible conclusions about when interference is permissible and when it's not. Do you think that the problem that we see with with the state of our political culture and political discourse is because people maybe maybe these are the same things as I think about saying this but I'll say it anyway um because they are refusing to engage in that kind of discourse or that that kind of discourse is in bad faith 
because it seems like a lot of people are willing to have the conversations about if you ask them, like, what is the harm, they'll list it. And they might give answers that those of us who are skeptical about it being a harm find wildly unpersuasive. But but a lot of it seems to be bad faith or pretextual. Like here's, you know, so that like when the gay, the gay marriage debates, when those were going on, very rarely did people say the harm that I see in gay marriage is that I personally find it yucky. Instead, they would point to all of these. And we've seen the same thing in the anti-trans. Like it's not just trans people kind of weird me out, which I think even they recognize would not be a good reason, but they'll concoct all of these, oh, it's social contagion and it's children and all these things that are transparently bad arguments. Like that seems to be, everyone's dealing in discourse, but it all seems to be pretextual or in bad faith. Yeah, I think two things. I I think there's certainly a lot of bad faith in the dialogue that we have, absolutely. But I don't think that's the reason that people don't want to do it. So, I mean, I, I really do think people refuse to engage in dialogue. But I, I don't even think that they refuse to engage in dialogue because they're thinking to themselves, these people are terrible. I don't want to dialogue with them. I don't think that's what's going on. I think we live in a culture where dialogue is frowned upon and we're taught from a very young age that we shouldn't engage in it, right? When you're when you're a kid and your parent says to you, now, don't bring up such and such a topic at dinner when the guests are over, right? What is that teaching you? It's teaching you that there are some things that are off limits that you shouldn't engage with. Why? Somebody's going to get upset about it or it's going to lead to an argument. And God forbid we have an argument over dinner, right? So I think that's the problem. We raise kids thinking that discourse is bad. We raise kids to think they shouldn't disagree with their elders. We raise kids to think that they shouldn't ask what we think of as embarrassing questions. All of that, when when you do all of that over and over again, you can't be surprised when these kids grow up to be adults who think that it's bad to ask questions and criticize others, right? So I have a, like every class, I start out with trying to encourage my students to to challenge me. Like, I don't want them to think that what I say, they have to accept, right? I think that's a really bad way to go. And I think that's true in general. We have to get people to a point where they're willing to ask questions. So I think our society is one that discourages, and I don't think it's just our society. I think it's really a, a bigger issue. But I do think our society really discourages people from asking questions so that they feel like it's rude to do so. It's rude to, rude to disagree. Again, I try to encourage people to recognize that if you're refusing to disagree with somebody, you're basically saying to them, I don't think you're capable of understanding me. I don't think you're capable of changing your mind. There's no point in me having a discussion with you. That's the disrespect. So I think that's the really big problem. And I think even when we're talking about the sort of pretextual issues, like, you know, if my son meets a gay man, he's going to turn gay, like it's going to catch or something like that. Like, even when you're dealing with those things, like, just face up to it and say, well, what in, what reason do you have to believe that that's the way things work, right? Because we have a whole lot of reason to think it doesn't work, right? Like, uh there are children of gay people who aren't gay. And I assume most gay people weren't children of gay people, right? I mean, some might have been if they were adopted or something, right? But most aren't. So there's a whole lot of reason to think it's not, it doesn't work that way. So again, I would want to encourage people to to actually engage even when they when they think the other side is is using a pretext. It seems though that getting to that point where people are willing to have more frequent dialogues of the kind that you're advocating for 
that requires a baseline level of tolerance in in society. Otherwise, it's just – I mean there are some views that we should not really be tolerant of. And I am I am very sympathetic to say my friends like – come back to like transgender rights, the trans friends who feel like they are basically – these. Why would I argue? Why would I sit down and have a dialogue with someone who basically doesn't think I should exist? You know, like that that there's they feel like there's an issue of danger, there's an issue of like hierarchy and oppression and social like all of these things are very, very real. Um, but without that baseline level of tolerance, it's hard to have these conversations in the first place. And so how do we how do we cultivate that? Because it's not something it's not something where you, like you can you can make your arguments and they can be very persuasive arguments, but people don't tend to like develop traits of character based on an argument that they found persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean first like if if a per, if if a particular person is, feels like it's unsafe for them to engage in the dialogue, like, they don't have to engage in the dialogue, right? That's sort of perfectly reasonable. So to expect a trans person to engage with uh, a transphobic intellectual who's giving arguments good or bad, uh, where they think they're unsafe, either in the purely psychological sense that they think it's going to be really detrimental to their mental health, or in a physical sense for whatever reason, like they don't have to do that, right? I, I don't. This isn't an insistence that you're obligated to engage in discourse with everybody. Um, and there are people I don't engage with discourse, right? I, I, I don't have a problem with talking to transphobes or anti-transphobes or, or, or trans advocates either way. Um, and so like, there should be people out there who are willing to do it. Right. Um, like I would do it like totally fine. Uh, you're a trans person. You don't want to have the dialogue with a transphobic person. If I'm there, I'll, I'll step in, um, assuming various things, but at the same time, uh, and, and there are lots of other reasons why we're not going to engage in dialogue, right? I, I can't, I have a very hard time engaging in dialogue with anybody that lies to my face. Like once you start lying to my face, I'm like, okay, there's no point in dialogue. Cause I don't know that you're going to be committed to anything you say. So why would I say anything back? Um, so yeah, it does require a level of tolerance, but it's not a requirement that each of us have to tolerate the other. But again, I think what we want to do is change we, we want to have a cultural shift so that people are more willing and able to engage in dialogue from the get-go. And I think if we did that, we'd have, A, a much more tolerant society from the first, from, from the get-go, and B, much fewer people feeling unsafe about engaging in the dialogue, right, for the, very, for the reason I just gave, right, that we'd have more tolerance. Uh, and so I think we have to figure out ways to encourage this from an earlier age. And I think, really, our society has been set up in in completely the reverse fashion, right? Think about our houses, right? Uh, we, we buy bigger and bigger houses. And what does that mean? It means our children have their own bedrooms. Uh, you know, uh, think about time 50 or 60 years ago, children didn't have their own bedrooms, right? That's a relatively modern thing. Even like 15 years ago, children certainly didn't have their own bathrooms, right? You'd have two kids, they'd each have a, a bedroom, and there'd be one bathroom that they shared. Now they have their own bedroom. They have their own bathroom. What what what's the result of that? They never have to engage in dialogue. They never have to figure out a way to deal with their sibling, 
right? And Americans tend to move out when they're young, when they're when they leave high school, so they don't really have to figure out how to deal with their parents as as adults, right? All of these things get in the way of our learning to have good dialogue. And I think so. Like, if I had multiple kids, I only have the one. But if I had more than one kid, I would absolutely not allow them to have separate bathrooms. I'm not sure if I'd allow them to have separate bedrooms, but I definitely would not allow them to have separate bathrooms. Like we have to force, we have to put people in situations that they are going to engage in dialogue, trying to figure out ways to improve their lives together. This makes me think of the conversations about public schools that came up during COVID because public schools are a place that's where most kids are forced together with a whole bunch of people they didn't choose into this one building and They've got to work. They've got to talk to each. Lots of talking to each other, and some of it is really bad. Um, and and so there were a lot of people on the one hand arguing like the the school shutdowns during COVID were harmful in part because the kids weren't getting that socialization. But then there were a lot of people on the other side of it saying like school is this unbelievably toxic place. Like I was just it was horrible for me. It's kids are so mean to each other. Being able to separate and the kind of forced association that doesn't exist outside in the real world because you can kind of get out of situations. Um, And so it seems like you're saying we should force people together more, but that brings its own, if if the people who think schooling is bad, like public schooling is bad, that brings its own problems. Yeah. So let me qualify. We should force our children, (laughs) right? But they're our children, right? And part of that is trying to figure out what's going to lead them to have the best life. Um, But so like, Again, if I had multiple kids, I would not allow them to have a bathroom apiece. Like maybe one bathroom is okay for two, but it's definitely not okay for one. So maybe if I had four kids, I'd have two bathrooms for them. Maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, I, I might just say, no, you all have to share the same bathroom. I think that's even better. But what we're talking about when we're talking about schooling is a little bit different. We're not talking about parents forcing their kids to engage in dialogue with others. We're talking about the state forcing the parents to force their children to do that. Right. And here I just come down very clearly on the side of those who think, look, schools are toxic. They don't have to be, but they often are. Right. So I'm I, I used to really worry about charter schools because I basically. But I don't want to make generalizations here, but I had uh, I had experiences with charter schools that were basically ways for very wealthy people to use state funding and then. uh add to the state funding to make really good, basically private schools for their own kids. Like that strikes me as a really bad way to go. If the state's funding is going to be used for schooling, it shouldn't be used in a way that just benefits the richer people. That's, that seems to me obviously wrong. Um, and I could go into that, but I won't. But uh, I think the benefit to charter schools is it allows you to take your, your child out of uh, assuming they're in a bad school or a school that's not necessarily bad, but just toxic for them, uh, right? And take them out of that and put them into another school. And that strikes me as exactly what we want to do. Um, And we might want to do that with a charter school, which makes it more affordable for a bunch of people. We might want to do it with private schools. We might want to do it with homeschooling, right? And the evidence is really quite good. Homeschool children not only come out and do better in terms of how they succeed in college, they turn out to be better socially adjusted, uh, better emotionally adjusted, like, and you know, in a way, this shouldn't be surprising because the claim that we have to send them to school to get socialized is really kind of silly. Like, 
if we don't send them to school to get socialized, what are we doing with them? Are we putting them in a room by themselves for 24 seven or something? No, of course not. They're getting socialized in a different way. Maybe they're just getting socialized with mom or dad. Maybe they're getting socialized with mom and dad and siblings. More likely, in fact, they're getting socialized with uh, another sibling or several other children who are in some sort of co-op, right? So there's always going to be the socialization going on. It's not zero socialization or the socialization of school. Well, and, and it also is the case that part of the reason we think they're not going to get socialized or they don't go to school is because we force all the kids into school. And so there's fewer people for them to socialize with if they're not, you know, like we don't tend to say, oh no, during their summer vacation, our kids aren't going to get socialized because they're hanging out with their friends. Um, although it does bring me back to the question of what has changed because you say that things have gotten worse and you mentioned larger houses. Uh, there also seems to be, like I look at, you know, when I was, I, I saw some little meme going around about like millennials and Gen X, and it was describing like the Gen X childhood of, you know, I disappear at dawn and my parents would have no idea where I was. And if we got thirsty, we'd find a random garden hose to drink out of. If we got hungry, we'd knock on doors until someone gave us a sandwich. And then we'd show up at dusk, you know, and and everyone who is Gen X had avoided at least one kidnapping at some point, you know, like, whereas now it's all like managed. Um, and that seems to also that adults seem to intervene in discourse more than they used to, that it's mediated a lot more than it used to be because we're not out. But all of those are like, those are things that change, but they're not reasons why it changed. And so why, why are if the situation is worse now than it used to be bracketing that there are we can point to times in history when discourse was very very bad um what has changed culturally to get us there yeah i don't know if i know the answer to this question <laughs> um i think there are various factors uh i think uh part of that likely is social media um but I think of these things as all coming in degrees. It's not like a sharp contrast, right? Because anything that people say about social media today, they would have said about cable news before or then television news before that or newspapers before that or even books. Like people complained about every new technology of communication that we've ever had. Uh, and, and maybe in each case there were problems. Um, I, I was actually talking to my mother about this. My mother's in her 80s and she has a very hard time using technology uh, and she, she's like looking at her smartphone, uh, which she has and uses for some things, but she has a hard time with. And she's like, it seems like they try to make everything easy and it just gets harder and harder. And I said, well, they say that about every technology that comes about. And my guess is that frankly, for every technology that comes out, uh, if it succeeds, at least that's reason to think it actually was helpful for a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that it was helpful for everybody. And that doesn't mean it wasn't even bad for some people. Probably it was. When you're used to a different technology and you, something new comes along, it might be hard for you to switch. And you might have a lot of difficulty with it. It may, might make your life even worse. I suspect in all cases, again, where the technology succeeds, it made the life better more than worse, right? And I think that's important. Uh, so I think all of those things go into it. But I think also uh, we have, I, I mean, this might sound just like libertarian craziness, uh, but I'll say it anyway, because I think it's probably true. Uh, 
over the years, over the last century or so, we've given the government more and more power to do things, right? And so at first it was government-created schools, right? And then it was government forced you to send your kids to school. Those weren't the same, right? First it was the schools were created, but you didn't, you didn't necessarily send your kids to school. Like I dated somebody, I don't know, like 20 or 30 years ago who never went to school as a child, right? And it, and it wasn't illegal at the time uh, where she grew up, right? So the, the, the second step was you're forced to send your child there. Then there's another step. Not only are you forced to send your child there, but if you don't provide them a lunch, that lunch will be provided for, for them. And then it was, if you don't provide them breakfast, that'll be provided for them. And then it was, if you don't have to take care of their health care, we're going to take care of it for them. So all of these things that, that have just been added one after the other is basically a way of more or less the government saying, don't worry about your kids. We'll take care of them. And the message comes through. I mean, I don't think people think it that way, right? But the, the message comes through. I don't have to worry about it. They'll take care of it. And that's just allowing uh, a distant bureaucracy, not federal in the case of schools, but still, it just, usually it's, you know, it's not the state even, right? It's like the, the local school board's allowed to control this, but that's distant in, in, the, in the important sense. Take care of these things. And so you have to be, again, it's not going to be surprising when people are no longer engaging themselves uh, the way they had to before, right? If you wanted to, if you wanted your child to get an education of any sort, you had to do it. Right, you had to either educate them yourself or enroll them in the school that you chose, uh, and then it became that you just go to the local school, right? And if you wanted to get your child to eat interesting food, you gave it to them, and you had to figure out ways to get them to eat it. And if you wanted to get your child to go to the doctor, you had all of these things, like the things that the parent had to do with the child. And now we've gotten to a point where it's less and less that the parent has to do these things and more and more that there's somebody else that does these things. And so we're discouraging parents from engaging with their children and we're discouraging parents from having their children engage with others. So superficially, it looks like we're forcing more discourse, but I think in, in reality, it's not. I want to ask you, I guess, to be self-indulgent, but um, because you have written extensively about tolerance. I want to ask you about this argument that I have made on this podcast and in writings elsewhere about the sufficiency of tolerance for a liberal society or to sustain a liberal society. Um, because I have come to increasingly view, and maybe and a lot of this is motivated by just watching the culture war play out, and particularly kind of the reactionary elements on the right, is that tolerance by itself is almost a, a negative moral judgment of behavior. Like behavior that you like, you don't have to tolerate because you like it. And so tolerance is saying, I think there is something wrong with what this person's doing, but I'm going to hold my tongue. And it seems increasingly to me that that is not enough for a liberal society because at some point, so a a dynamic and robustly free society is going to be one that changes very quickly. There's going to be a lot of different people doing all sorts of things, all sorts of experimenting with lifestyles, having all sorts of preferences that are evolving quickly and going in all kinds of directions. And all of us do have a line beyond which either we just for principled reasons are unwilling to tolerate or it just becomes increasingly hard. We just are, are so uncomfortable that – 
it's hard to, even if we know it would be best to tolerate this behavior, it just becomes difficult. And and so it seems to me that instead what we need to be doing is tolerance is like a baseline, but for a liberal society to sustain itself and be healthy, we actually need to cultivate a joy in others' self-expression even if, like call it, so in ancient Indian philosophy, there's the idea of mudita or sympathetic joy, which is I'm not taking joy in your actions. I might even like not really like the actions, but I am taking sympathetic joy in the fact that you are feeling fulfillment, that you are happy in them, even if it's in a different way. And that to me increasingly seems like a necessary component of a healthy liberal society is cultivating basically a love of others happiness and self-expression so let me say two things one uh my libertarian view is based on the harm principle which is a principle that requires a great deal of toleration but i think also allows for interference right in particular if you do harm to somebody there's a possibility that we're going to interfere right uh not necessarily going to interfere right it's only a protonto reason but at least interference might be permissible if you do harm to somebody. Uh, but one thing that it has to be recognized is because we want institutions that are present to do the interfering, I think the, the harm principle itself also allows for a minimal form of taxation to guarantee that those institutions can exist. Right, basically a policing and court system sort of system, uh, not like what we have now, <laughs> right? Because I think what we have now violates the harm principle all the time. Uh, but I won't go into that. So that's the first thing. Uh, so there, there's a sense in which I want to say uh, merely tolerating isn't sufficient on those grounds because we have to have the means to interfere when necessary, right? Secondly, and most importantly, though. Uh, I think what you're pushing toward is not uh, an ideal liberal society. I think what you're pushing toward is something more than the ideal liberal society. I think the ideal liberal society is the society that has broad toleration. It doesn't eliminate conflict and it doesn't result in a society where we all love each other. Right. I think the society where we all love each other, like as much as my own view might be pie in the sky, that view is even more pie in the sky. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a realistic thing that we can come to. I'm not even sure I would like it, right? Do I really want to live in a society where I find joy in everybody else's doing whatever they're wanting to do? Like, I don't think so, right? There are all sorts of crazy views out there. Um, you know, I, I look at, you, you know, I mean, I look at homosexual people and I'm like, you're happy? Great, fine, I don't care. Uh, I look at trans people, I'm like, you're happy? Great. Fine. I don't care. It doesn't have any effect on me. There are points in which I think, I don't know, like, you want to have an affair with your dog. Like, I don't know if I think that's okay, right? And I might end up saying, go for it as long as you're happy and the dog's happy. I don't really care. But I don't think I want to associate with you any longer, right? And I'm not going to be, like, joyful in your in your participation in that sort of activity. Uh, and So I, I think... Yeah. So for me, the liberal society does include continual tension and disagreement that doesn't go away. And I think that's not a bad thing because the continual disagreement and tension allows us to grow. It allows us to keep asking questions about the way we live. And I think that's for the better.
it makes us better as humans. Yeah, I don't think I'm not I don't think I'm advocating or believe that we can achieve the society where everybody loves each other. I think it is more a a cultivating a general attitude of other people's happiness is good. Um and and that their happiness is coming in ways that are not the ways that I would personally choose is there can be exceptions, but on the whole, we should be, we should be happy that people are finding happiness in diverse ways and that they are able to achieve the kind of life that they want. And it feels like a lot of what happens, a lot of what you see in our society is almost like, um, there's the, the Mencken line about puritanism, puritanism is, is the fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. Um, there's that, that, that shows up that it's like that they are enjoying themselves, that these people are happy in ways that I wouldn't choose is like a threat to me is something that I am, I'm angry about. I want them to stop it. And, and so this isn't, you know, we should force everyone to love everyone, but more that we should just see it as part, part of being a virtuous person is a capacity to have, to gain joy from others joy. So I'm almost with you, given the way you said it, but I, I would I would change it a little bit. I would say the following. I do think toleration is a sort of a second best. But the best is not the joy, because A, I think it's unreasonable, and B, I, you know, there are certainly religious traditions where they say we should all love one another. And like, like I'm sorry, like... Aaron, I like you a lot, but like, I don't love you the way I, lo- I love, love my wife or, or my, or my son or my parents, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, that's a mistake in the way we think about these things. What I think would be the best sort of society, what might be the ideal liberal society would be a society where we're really concerned with a few people, our family and friends, and we're completely and utterly indifferent to everybody else. And that means we don't get joy from them. But we also have no desire to interfere with them. We have no desire to stop them. We don't get angry with them. We don't think that what they're doing is gross. We just don't think about it at all. I think the problem with our society, and maybe this is just a problem with humanity, is we get really concerned with what other people are doing. I like. I, I find this sort of fascinating because it's not something that I do. Like I just don't care about most other people. People get upset with me when I say that. Like, why don't you care about them? Like because it's their life. It has nothing to do with me. But I think it would be better if that's the way we were. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers. 